welcomes it in conversation with a series of podcasts from Verona featuring chats and discussions with leading figures from the contact center, CX and customer engagement industry. During this series, we want to find out what customer service organizations are doing during these challenging times and try and discover what it is that drives the leaders in this space and what makes them tick. My name is Martin Riddle, and as well as being your host for this series, I'm also Verant's Vice President of Marketing for the Asia-Pacific region. In the second episode of this two-part special, Ian Harrison continues his in-depth discussion on compliance with Tanushu Debral of PX Partners. Ian, sir, back to you. Thanks, Martin. Now, Tanushu, let's return to where we left off last time. So if I think back to, say, some of my past roles in you know, leading large organisations, yeah. What are the things that I would need to do in this world if I'm running a large contact centre or a large back office operations? Where are the areas that you think I should be focusing on? What sort of governance, risk, compliance practices would I, as an executive in that sort of space, need to be focusing on? You know, what would be your sort of top five hints, for want of a better word, yeah. of things that I should be doing? Yeah. So I mean, I think it's it, as I'm about to say it. It feels like a cliche to say, but it is it comes down to people process systems, right? So, mm -hmm. you know, do you have the right, both the structure and the right, you know, individuals in the roles? Do you have the right technology to support the people and the processes that you're looking to support? Mm -hmm. And then, you know, have you rigorously sort of been through the process of understanding where your risk is arising? Mm -hmm. So I think breaking it down to those fundamentals is, is key. I think with the regulatory change that we're seeing coming through, the the onus is coming back much more into organisations around taking a consumer outcome lens to to the regulatory to to the changes they're making to the products they're issuing to the services they're mm -hmm. providing. So you know, finding a way to have that embedded throughout the organisation is going to be key. Mm. What about some of the new technologies? I was interested that um, you know there are changes coming along with some of the regulatory guidelines, and if you think about yeah. um, RG two seven one, for yeah. example, it's it's asking us to start think about social media and how do we understand a customer's interaction via social media yeah. and where's an organisation's accountability stop and start? Yeah. Um, I can see the regulator feels like that's a new space they really need to go into, but yeah. do they really understand the complexities of what that actually means for an organisation? Yeah. So so that's, yeah, RG271 coming into effect 5th of October. And so effectively what that means is that firms, will, financial services firms, will need to start monitoring the social media channels that they own mm -hmm. and any complaints in those channels need to be put through the <coughs> same process as you know, complaints that they receive from other channels. Now, the, you know, I think that in a way there's an opportunity there in terms of the way organisations think about complaints, right? So it's free feedback. Mm. Organisations can play, pay a lot of information to receive feedback and to gauge customer sentiment. And to be receiving that for free from a customer, I think, is an, is an opportunity for product owners and, you know, service owners to really to, to use that information. I think from the regulators perspective, they over the last few years have invested a lot more. Well, they've created a, you know, a, a data office, they've got a chief data officer. So I think the regulator really is looking at chain regulatory changes as well as pilot programs across various parts of the industry to look at what data they should be collecting mm -hmm. and to help them in their surveillance, to, to be more targeted in their surveillance activity. So I mean, I do think 
it, it's deliberate um, on the part of the regulator, and, and I also think you know just with the way, way the world is moving to exclude a channel as mm. you know uh, common in this day and age as social media would be a miss. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that would mean to me seem to imply that the organisations need to start thinking about different technologies and different ways of actually interrogating what's happening in some of those channels. That's right. And that's obviously a really challenging issue for some smaller organisations who are only starting to get their head around the implications of the, the regulatory guidelines for them. That's I mean, right. I've talked to lots of different organisations and, as you know, some are fairly mature in their processes and um, others are only now just starting to realise that you know, Africa might actually come and talk to them, for example, yeah. and that you know they've probably been lucky to not be the focus for so long. Yeah. So, other um, other key areas that you think that organisations should be really addressing right now that are sort of the basic things they just need to get out of out of the way and address straight away in terms of the looming changes coming with the regulation. Yes, I mean there are some there are some big changes coming. So, I mean the D design and distribution obligations (DDO), I would say of you know, what's going to affect anyone that provides financial service to retail customers, that's probably the biggest. Mm -hmm. And that really does represent quite a fundamental shift. So we've come historically from a disclosure regime where the onus is really on the, the product, or the onus is really on the customer, I would say, to make sure that they've read the disclosures. And the, you know, from a product issuer perspective, you fundamentally just need to meet the compliance requirements in terms of the disclosure. Now, where... And ASIC has been quite vocal about disclosure not working, as have other regulators around the world. So, you know, a report they put out um, from a little over a year ago now showed that the research showed that about, you know, 20% of consumers actually do read the disclosure that they're provided. So, mm -hmm. you know, disclosure as a regime doesn't yeah. work and it's sort of been, it's come up quite loud and clear through the Royal Commission as well. So what DDO is now doing is it's changing the, the it's rebalancing the onus away from customers needing to read disclosure and bringing it back to product issuers and distributors of products. So if you're a product issuer, you need to have, you know, determined who, who, who it is you want to sell the product to, so who mm -hmm. your target market is, and really have thought through what are the right sales channels, the right, the right distribution conditions uh, to make sure the product's being sold to the intended target market. Mm -hmm. And then if you're a distributor of that product, you need to have the processes in place to, to make sure that you are only selling to that prescribed target market yeah. as well. So does that mean that as an organisation, I need to be able to prove that Mrs Smith has actually received the product disclosure statement, has actually acknowledged it, and I have to be able to keep track of that? Is that how it works? How, what are the implications for me as a as an organisation or a, an operations team sending out disclosures and PTSs and other materials. Yeah, so so actually, if anything, the, the onus also shifts back a bit more to the the, the product governance science, right? So the right. design of the product. But when it does come to the distribution of the product, it will have impacts on things from relating to you know, online sales and how those flows work and the scripting. Uh, it'll work, sorry, it'll also have an impact on call center scripting as well. Mm -hmm. So because effectively product issuers are now going to need to determine what their distribution conditions are and the types of consumers they want to distribute to. And as the person selling the product on the phone, there'll need to be a process there for, for you know, to, to the controls there to help ensure only those target customers are coming into the product. So, you know, asking eligibility questions, for example. So a lot of this, it'll be a, a systems and controls approach with organisations really needing to think through 
their their core scripting, their their monitoring, um, and, and intend really. Mm. So it sort of goes back to what you were saying before, which is yeah. getting timely guidance to the call center agents yeah. and the rest of the organization about, well, this is the new process and this is a new flow and you need to do the following things That's and right. making sure they adhere to that is yeah. going to be an ongoing challenge, yeah. um, which I guess also raises the issue about, well, what's the what's the single source of truth an organization has about their relationship with the customer? Because mm. many organizations you know, don't have that sort of CRM single view yeah. desktop that allows you to see everything that's going on yeah. because of the way the organization's evolved over time. Yeah. So I imagine that's going to be a huge challenge for organizations to get their head around it. Do you think they're prepared on the whole? I think mixed would be right. my response. Um, so I think firms are quite well progressed in you know, coming up with their target market determinations. Now I think where firms are, you know, a, a bit more challenged is considering how they're going to monitor their distribution channels. You know, what's the information that they're going to seek back? And also is the right approach to seek back information? Because once you have information, you still have to have a process around, well, what does this mean? What are we going to do with it? What yeah. does the data actually tell us? Um, and I think firms are grappling with, well, what's the informational data we want back? Or would we, would we rather take more of a due diligence approach to understanding the systems and controls of our distributors and then only on an exceptions basis, you know, seeking seeking information? So I think that's something that different parts of the industry are kind of grappling with at the moment. Mm. Okay. And I'm interested in just thinking about sort of call centres or customer experience yeah. functions as a whole. To me, they've always been the ones who are, let's call it, more aware of some of the challenges around, yeah. you know, a frustrated customer, poor sentiment, yep. um, a level of um, emotion and uh, annoyance from the customer as they go through this sort of painful journey. And they've, yeah. they've often had insights from, you know, quality management and complaints data and speech yep. analytics and other sources. Mm -hmm. Do you see that the, the contact centre is going to become a more important source of information in the future? I sort of see that, you know, as, as the virtualization of distribution happens, then yeah. contact centres actually have a really powerful seat at the table and a whole lot of insights yeah. about customers that perhaps they never realised they had before. Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree because I guess with online channels and contact centres, there's, there's the ability to to monitor and interrogate information in the way that there there isn't the same when it's a pure face-to-face -face, mm -hmm. um, interaction. So I I wholeheartedly agree with you. But I think it's uh, contact centers is an area of extremely um, rich for, for management information and insights. Tunisha, I was interested in um, thinking about response to pandemic. So mm -hmm. as you know, you know many of the, the organizations were really quite happy and patting themselves on the back. They suddenly rapidly got their workforce at home and yep. some of them had employees driving through car parks, picking up laptops and then running off home and plugging in and suddenly they were working and yep. calls were being answered. Um, probably a little while later, I think a few of them probably realised that, okay, calls were being answered, but actually what on earth were people saying and mm -hmm. was it compliant and what about mm -hmm. these new people we'd suddenly added to our workforce rapidly to scale yeah. up to the, the demand? Mm -hmm. Talk to me a bit about the, the work from home world and what does that mean for a governance risk and compliance perspective and the yeah. challenges ahead? Yeah. So I, I, it was fascinating. I mean, the whole period's been fascinating from a governance risk and compliance yeah. perspective. I think it's really opened organisations' eyes about just the, the flaw in maintaining manual controls, right? Mm. So, you know... 
there is some value in supervision by osmosis, you know, by kind of being on the floor and everyone yeah. being able to hear or see what everyone else is doing. <laughs> but I would say that that value is limited. And once you move your workforce to be work from home, it's 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 negligible, you know, mm -hmm. sort of beyond limited. I think it's been, um, you know, so for firms that do rely very much on paper-based forms, um, manual KYC processes, et cetera, it's been quite eye-opening, even if you look at trading floors where mm. firms where the controls were fundamentally, we keep our traders separated, we don't let them ring their mobile phone onto the trading floor. In today's world, none of that, none of that's really enough. Mm -hmm. So, you know, adopting technology, I think, is, is, is key. And I think for firms that have already had that in place, the transition and the comfort levels of management, it's been much smoother because, of, you know, fundamentally, the, the same monitoring and oversight mechanisms you were relying on as your key controls in the office can be the same ones that you're relying on when your workforce starts mm -hmm. working from home as well. A key risk coming out of this is really around the people risk, so, you know, employee morale. Mm -hmm. And firms that have been quite considered in thinking about, okay, well, as we have staff working from home and then say we want certain staff working from the office, what's the right mix and also what what's the right activity to be undertaken in an office, right? Mm -hmm. So should time in the office be spent more on the collaboration and connection rather than for the sake of it, people coming into the office to simply be on a Zoom call with their colleagues working mm, from, mm, from home. Mm. So I think thinking about you know, people impacts, employee morale, um, and in parts of the world where, where you've got team members still in lockdown, that's you know, quite an alive issue. I think that's really important, but having your monitoring and oversight controls being you know, technology-based, I think mm -hmm. is going to be key. So when you talk about technology, what sort of things are you thinking of in that space? So anything from call recording, relying on speech analytics, trade surveillance, and calibrating all of that to see that you're still comfortable with the, the threshold. So you're mm -hmm. still comfortable with the sample sizes you're using. Is it exceptions-based enough or is it you know, a bit too one-size-fits-all? Are you focusing in on the, um, the, the transactions that you do perceive as being you know, I shouldn't even say perceive as being higher risk, but that you've determined a higher, mm -hmm. higher risk. So I think there are a lot of tools out there. I think there's also an opportunity for firms to think, you know, a bit more creatively around the culture and conduct aspects. So what, what data already exists in an organisation that can help you to be an indicator of potential culture or conduct type of issues. So I've heard of firms doing things like starting to look at who's submitting expense reports late. You know, is there a correlation between uh, submitting an expense report late and potentially also lagging on doing your mandatory compliance training? So you know, there's quite a lot of information out there, and I think mm. it's about firms just... Te you know, testing and learning and using what there is. Yeah, yeah. I think it comes back to what we were saying before, isn't it? There's such a massive amount of unstructured data you yeah. could put into the mix and then it's how do you actually analyse that and yeah. start creating relationships and correlations That's and right. so forth between all those data sources, yes. which is a huge opportunity, but yeah. many organisations just haven't got the ability to ingest all those different channels. No, that's right. And it's actually, it's interesting when you work with clients that have received, um, you know, regulatory notices from ASIC for, you know, vast amounts of data, often transactional data. And when they receive the, after they've provided that information and they receive the kind of follow-up questions from ASIC, 
that's often the first time the data's been inter interrogated and it's been by the regulator, yeah. right? So firms have a lot of this information themselves and it's really, it's important to put the, the practices in place and the accountabilities in place for that, for that data to be looked at rather than it being looked at by an external party for the first time. Mm. Yeah. So talking about first time, I mean, obviously post-Royal Commission in Australia, yeah. the, mm. the vulnerable customer issues suddenly became to the fore as part of yeah. the banking code of practice implementation, et cetera. Yeah. Um, and probably there were some people, I think particularly in contact centres, who were probably surprised that suddenly that was such an issue mm. and the first time everybody's talking about this and they've been dealing with these you know, very needy customers for quite some time and yeah. they could really relate to some of those experiences that uh, then became really rather high profile and yeah. needed to be addressed as part of the, the code. Um, what's your thoughts on the approach to customer vulnerability? Because I know with the Banking Code Compliance Committee, there was obviously in their recent report, they found all sorts of breaches still through mm -hmm. the, the various banks with regards to the code. In fact, I think there was about a 600% increase, if I remember rightly, in terms of code breaches. Yeah. So what are your thoughts? What's going on there and how should organisations respond? Yeah, so I think... In terms of the increase in the number of breaches, you know, I guess the organisations that, that their data is an input into that report, they've attributed that to an increase in risk awareness largely, mm. and you know, and that may that may very scary, well be the really. case. Suddenly they realise it's there and they do something. Yeah. yeah. So you know, and then that may well be the case that it's sort of the awareness of the requirements is le is what's leading to um, the increase in reporting, and I guess from the perspective of a risk and compliance practitioner reporting is a good thing, right? So looking at an increase in the number of breaches in and of itself I uh, wouldn't see as a, a red flag. I think it becomes more interesting when you look on like a year-on-year -year or, you know, multi-year-on-year -year trend analysis. Yeah. So that's when it becomes more interesting. So if, say, for example, so, so in, in the report you're referring to, the a lot of the some of the larger increases related to um, small business customers and I guess what you would expect to see or, or ideally hope to see is you would have an, as awareness grows and as controls improve or detective controls improve, you may have, you know, an increase in the reporting of breaches, but really what should then be happening is quite systemic changes being made within an organisation, shifting their control environment to be more preventative, and then you should see the number of breaches, you know, plateau or even mm -hmm. decrease, even with the same level of risk awareness. Yeah. So I think looking at year-on-year um, -year trends will will be interesting. Yeah. yeah. So again, ironically, you end up talking about the need to interrogate yeah. a whole lot of information, a yes, lot of data, that's right. and aggregate it all at one place. That's right. Which is the increasing challenge, isn't it, yes. for the, the, the wider, I guess, not just customer experience functions, but the whole organisation. That's and, right. You know, to my comment earlier, I think that the the contact centres, customer experience functions have so much to contribute and so many insights yes. to add. And therefore, I think you then end up in this conversation around how are those organisations structured? Are they set up to facilitate that interrogation and that sharing of data? And I yeah. guess also increasingly, given the, the speed at which things change, mm. how, how quickly can they share their insights with the other parts of the organisation and then can organisations respond in a nimble enough fashion to close out those those issues? Yeah. No, I see challenges where, you know, we want to change something fast and the, the risk community says it takes so many months and the marketing team say, oh, it's going to take them ages to read through all that material and change the wording. And meanwhile, the, the regulator or the, even the customer is demanding a quick fix to an issue almost overnight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I think 
I think that has to that has to change. I mean, I think the the sorts of lead times organisations have said they need that that can't be the way of the future, especially given organisations have shown that when it matters to when mm, it matters, they can't they yeah, can't change. Okay. Um, I, I also think when it comes to capabilities within an organisation, this applies across the organisation, including to the risk and compliance community. Really thinking about is the the capability mix you have the right capability mix for the for the future? So, you know, say risk and compliance teams historically have been people, um, including myself in this in this bucket, of you know, audit backgrounds, accounting backgrounds, legal backgrounds. Is that the right? you know, background mix to have in an environment where actually you're going to get your insights through the analysis of data with people mm, knowing mm. Uh, how to how to analyse it, how to integrate it, how to glean insights from it. So I mm -hmm. think across across the organisation, making sure that that capability exists is going to be key. Mm. Okay. Um, well, look, Tanushri Dabral, thank you so much. I appreciate you taking the time out to talk to us today. It was a pleasure. Thanks, Dan. Thank you. Thank you.